Hello and welcome to another episode of our podcast from the Blue Earth Summit, a movement and community driving positive action for our natural world. In this series, we'll bring you some of the highlight talks and conversations from our first summit in Bristol in October 2021. In this episode, Disrupting the Status Quo. The youth of today are the climate's biggest hope, with an assumed opinion that they're the main contributors to rising levels of litter, as well as having somewhat a disregard for the environment. Youngsters are often given a bad rap, but modern youth have something to say. Climate-led youth activism is more prominent than ever. The main point of focus is to shift the status quo, and to do this we must call out the biggest contributors to environmental damage. When it boils down to it, do we really have the capacity to become a net-zero society by 2030? And whilst people do have good intentions, we have a real responsibility to turn round the ecological crisis – Join our panellists as they uncover the systematic flaws we face in creating change and what we need to do to step outside our comfort zone. Lucy Siegel was joined by Dan Norris, the Metro Mayor for the West of England, Nicola Beach, Bristol Councillor and Cabinet Member for Climate, Ecology, Waste and Energy, Yasmin Belhaj, Youth Activist from Students Organising for Sustainability, and Gabe Davis, European Surf Manager at Patagonia. I would love to start by just getting your perspectives and a little understanding a little bit about where you focus your energy and your intervention. So, um, Yasmin, could we start with you? So, hi, everyone. Um, I'm Yasmin. I'm 17, so I'm currently in my last year of sixth form. Uh, my main organising at the moment is with Teach the Future, which is a climate education campaign. We focus on implementing education and sustainable practice around the climate crisis from primary school all the way up to university. I'm personally based in Wales, so most of my work is around the Welsh education system, but we have a UK-wide campaign. Um, I've done quite a lot of work um, with the education minister in Wales. Um, We submitted various amendments to the new curriculum going through Welsh Government at the moment and um, we've just started some work on writing a Welsh Climate Education Act. It's a bill at the moment but uh, we've got lawyers on board who are helping us to write this and hopefully uh, with the support of um, politicians we can get it to pass in the Senate and hopefully if, if we get this legislation through England and Scotland who are also from our campaign have got these bills um, because we've got a more left-wing government. Hopefully they will also take action and implement that in their respective nations. Okay, and what uh, point did you um, turn from someone who was very concerned? And I know because we talked earlier that you you were involved in protests and that you were very aware of issues. What t- what, at what point did you turn to being an organiser and, and dedicating much, if not all, of your life to these issues? It was very much... Um in early 2019, when the Youth Strike for Climate movement in the UK and across the world started um, with young people organising amongst themselves without adults, Um, that's when I got involved in the UK Student Climate Network, which uh, led me to doing various other organising with adults, but predominantly it was, um, I was 14 just turning 15 and it was just working with other young people which was something I hadn't seen happening at all 
anywhere. And it was really empowering to be able to campaign in an environment that was completely youth-led and without uh, being overshadowed by adults who, although some of them, a lot of them are great, but they're... <laughs> sorry for, like... <laughs> yeah. Um, but... Nice right back. <laughs> but there are um, quite a lot of um, people out there that use, like, youth activism, youth voice as more of a, like, a tokenistic approach and often see us as young people as being quite naive. Well, in fact, particularly... Uh, in youth organizing, I found there are so many knowledgeable young people. Like I've known there's like people who are 14 at, at the moment that get 15 who have got so much knowledge on environmental and political policy that I, you know, it just seems to be the same level as someone who would have studied at a university. I, I can attest to that. I spent last week with some youth climate activists and some of them are going on to study politics, but I don't know what there will be left for them to learn on the course. But anyway, that's a different thing entirely. Um, Nicola, welcome to you. Hi. Hello. Could you tell us um, about your role and a sort of central question is, where would you say your responsibility lies? Speaking truth to power, disrupting the status quo, are those part of your mission? Well, hi. Uh, firstly, at 17, oh, I was doing none of those things. Like, it's completely amazing up there in Salford. I would have had no idea that um, that path was available. So that is just phenomenal. And I have to say, I do also feel like a real sign of progress for society that this is even possible at the age of 17, because it definitely wasn't when I was growing up. Um, so my role, uh, I'm the cabinet member for climate, ecology, energy and waste. It's a bit of a mouthful at Bristol City Council. I took that role on in May after, I don't know if, if anyone in the room lives in Bristol, but we had a, a bit of an election in May and I was asked to take that brief then. Um, what is my job? Um, I mean, to be honest with you, I have to say that this is a very much a conference about climate and also obviously probably does kind of get into that ecology space quite heavily. But the bit of my job that surprise me more than anything is waste so I can't talk it would be remiss of me to talk about the rest of my job if I don't just talk about those amazing men and women who collect your shit from your door every single day of the week every week of the year in this city because they are an absolute phenomenon and it's been an unbelievable learning curve taking that part of my job on you know our relationship with waste in this city nationally and internationally needs a complete and utter overhaul you know we own that rubbish we own that recycling. And so as part of kind of my commitment to this role, it's linking directly the relationship between our waste, the climate emergency and the ecological crisis that we face in this city. Because the separation of those themes is a, is a total misnomer. Mm. And so I can, maybe we'll come on to bins yeah. in more detail later, but it was a I, bit I, of my I job talk about that bins I have, for hours. Oh my God. And everyone is so emotionally attached to their black bin. There's some right weird divorce that we all need to go on. But again, that's another topic. Um, in terms of climate, um, if you, I don't know if people in the room follow politics in, in, in the city and in the region, but obviously we spent a lot of time following the declaration of the climate emergency and the ecological emergency, planning for that change. Like, where is the start line, right? What, what data do we have? Like, how do we understand the impacts we're currently having on the planet from this city, a very progressive city, a city of protest, a city of climate marches, you know, the kind of place where you know, there's a protest every single day of the week, but we're still having this impact on the planet. And so we've done that. You know, we've got that climate plan. 
it's not perfect, but we have the plan. We've got that written out and we've got that line of sight to how we, what it will take to get to a net zero position by 2030. My job in truth day to day is, is like ferociously practical. It, it is making those decisions about where do we next put our heat network and how do we get the financing for that and how many households will that bring into a sort of low carbon heat and power it's um well yeah how do we solve our bin crisis around how many drivers we've got with the hgv crisis that's happening it's how do we um get the right funding for the skills that we need at south bristol college in order to get people that can fit air source heat pumps you know it's very much going from, um, and I'm fair to say probably everyone in this room has a shared set of ideals, from the ideals that we all hold to literally doing the next right thing as a local authority. I think you could probably divide the mindsets in this city into three camps. And before I finish, I'll just talk through my view of what that looks like and how we fit as a local authority and the whole point about are we challenging. One is the climate deniers, which we don't need to talk about today, Two is the people that have good people, but they're in organisations and systems that don't work for the environment. And those people as individuals care, but they can't, make the, they can't find the right cogs to turn to make the change, or their organisation they work for or represent doesn't want to. And then the third people, the good people, they want to change, and their organisation also wants to change, but they don't yet have the systems at their disposal. And so very much, rather than being a disruptor, my job is to be an enabler. So forget the one-third for a minute and let's focus on those two-thirds because if we unlock those two-thirds, we've gone a long way of where we need to get to. Okay, makes sense. Thank you. You've got a lot to um, come back to there as well. Thank you very much for that. Um, Gabe, um, so we have Cardiff, we have Bristol, Northumberland represented here. Yes, thank you for having me today. Just drove down the road yesterday. <laughs> yeah, you, you've, you've made quite the journey. Thank you very much indeed. Um, so um, where do you think we are in terms of how easy is it to disrupt the status quo and speak truth to power? It's, okay, I'm sitting next to some awesome speakers here tonight and... Um, I'm trying to think back to when I was 17 and what I was doing, and also I can just see the, the when you talk about the logistics of like physical bin waste that we talk about, they're phenomenal like systems we've got to change. Um, where I sit is basically, I've worked for the company called Patagonia, so Patagonia is a fantastic outdoor brand, privately owned. The owner is um, a guy, Yvonne Schuenard, I don't know if anyone's read his book, it's a very inspiring book. He's a really impatient guy, he wants to get stuff done, and he wants to get it done really quickly. He sees the world around us and how, how he wants to drive change. And that sort of filters all the way down through all the teams to where I sit. I look after the sort of oceans category, so it's the surf, surfing side of that. There's quite a few surfers in the room today, and we might see some tomorrow down at the Wave with Nick. And for me, it's like learning from Yvonne, who has shown probably all of the clothing industry the right path to go down yet hasn't really made an impact on that industry the amount of organic cotton used is still the same as it was 30 40 years ago it's, it's like minimal change he's getting frustrated by that industry so he has since jumped onto provisions for food food sourcing food uh, production to work on that he's, he's moving on to regenerative agriculture for a way to find the cotton. So organic cotton is no longer good enough. He's um, allowed space for the wetsuit development crew to spend 10 years R&Ding a natural-based rubber wetsuit, which saves 80% CO2 compared to traditional neoprene. So 
he's sort of sent his sort of disciples out in the world to uh, spread his message. But that message talks way beyond just the clothing that we wear. He's taught, I know you were part of the um, We The Power campaign, which is talking about community energy. Um, which again, so Patagonia's got nothing to do with not an energy supplier, not an energy company, but we've seen the value in community energy as a way to, to literally change communities um, and empower communities. We're talking about fish farming, hydroelectricity, the destruction, the dams, um, hydroelectricity is not uh, green energy. So, so my s- small part of this world that we're sitting in is... Um, yeah, often sort of challenges the status quo, I'd say, but way beyond just the clothing world. Yeah, definitely. Multiple industries, multiple attacks on multiple things. And we're not always against something. We want, we want to say that we're for, for lots of positive things. We're for the environment, we're for the great NGOs. Um, but we want to just highlight the world as it sits. And it's a very sort of cloudy world with a lot of like, I think you, you had the panels today, a lot of greenwashing there. A lot of sort of brands saying one thing, doing another, jumping on the bandwagon here. And um, so, yeah, that's highlighting some of those is where I sit. And has it changed um, with the framing? So I'm thinking of a few months ago when that IPCC six assessment report came out and the UN Secretary General said that this was code red for humanity and stuff like that. I, I know Patagonia has been doing this stuff um, before that, but it's almost as if this emergency, once you acknowledge it's an emergency, then for people like, um, um, or for brands like Patagonia or whoever, it becomes like, right, we need to go exactly. So we're not getting enough shift in this, in this system, fashion system, I would argue. We need to go to where we can make the most shift the most quickly. So food systems, river systems, energy systems. Is there part of that feeling that that's the framing now? Yeah, basically. Um, Yvonne Schoenard, again, going back to, right to the... Use him because he's the head. Are you one of his disciples, by the way? Because might, might be one we of might his be one of, We might be in the presence <laughs> we, of we, one of the disciples. Yeah, of which we all are. I think we all are a little bit. And a lot of people here probably are a little bit, even though they may or may not know his story. Um, yeah, he he basically he's a he's a sort of sort of pretty pessimistic character, and we had this sort of mission statement, and we said, "Well, build the best product, use business to you know f- to cause no unnecessary harm." It's like like quite long winded like mission statement, and it was above our doors when we walk in the office and on our brochures and this and that. And then he was getting sort of so frustrated about the lack of change yeah. from the other brands. He just wiped it clean and went, we are in business to save the home planet. And then we were all like, oh, okay, so what, so what does that mean? He's like, you guys figured it out. And we're like, okay. So basically, and when you break it down, it's the most like, so our job is to save the home planet as a team. Some of the team are in here today. So it's like pressures on those guys to like save the home planet. Basically, what he's getting at is like you've got the likes of like Elon Musk saying like I'm going to send my spaceships to Mars to repopulate another planet. He's like, no, no, the the problem is here on this planet. We do have the solutions, we're just not working out the solutions. We haven't got the systems in place to work on those solutions, and we need to get behind it. We need to listen to the youth who have seen more clearly than most everybody else, and the business that's like clouded in their shareholder quarterlies. And just cut to the chase and like we've got to get down to the nitty-gritty and get involved. 
Cut to the chase, I like that. Um, welcome uh, to uh, the Metro Mayor for the West of England, Dan Morris. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Would you like a moment to collect your thoughts or are you happy to... Because it's actually just got to you, which is... Okay, well, look, um, for those of you who are into this sort of thing, you'll probably see that I'm creating some disruption already because there's some choppy waters between me and the local council leaders. Um, and, and that's something that we have to resolve. But the reason that it's happening is because I believe that we, in, in the West of England region, which, as many of you know, is made up of Bristol here, obviously, South Gloucestershire, Bath and North East Somerset, and in some respects, North Somerset, um, we need to work strategically because the solutions to the environmental emergency, frankly, require overarching solutions, not just individuals working, albeit well-intentioned, but actually joining up to make a real difference. Um, and that does create tensions, I'm afraid. Um, but we'll work it through, uh, and we need to work it through because, uh, for, for those of you who don't know, um, sort of many years ago, back in the late 80s, I was first a Bristol City Councillor. Uh, and it sort of struck me even then, as a relatively young person, that um, we were not thinking strategically enough, that we were always sort of looking inwards. Uh, perfectly understandable, because when you go into politics, you want to change your community for the better, you want to make a difference. But in some solutions, particularly to things like the climate, you need to think bigger, and you have to connect and, and, and sort of join up. So, yes, I do think that in terms of responsibility, my responsibility is to the people. I am actually a Labour person through and through. But first and foremost, I've got to do what I believe is right, and I believe that's important in politics. Uh, and I think that one of the unique things probably that I say is that it's not just everybody else who has to change if we're going to meet the climate emergency. My own party has to change too, because we don't have a monopoly on virtue, and we certainly don't have all the answers. Uh, I'd also argue that the other parties don't too. Uh, but at least I'm prepared to acknowledge that we need to change uh, and make improvement. You use the framing of the ecological emergency. How many of your colleagues use that framing? It's hard to say. Um, what I think is genuinely true is people are well-intentioned. Uh, but what I think is not happening enough is I don't think that people are accepting there's an emergency. Uh, and I have. Uh, and, and that's partly because I've been influenced by younger generations, actually. Mm. Uh, and actually, that's a role. Uh, I look in this audience as best I can. I don't want to be frightened either because the lights are making it so you can't see. But as I look at you, you all look pretty friendly. But you also look pretty young, to be honest, compared to me. Uh, and that is a big and important thing because I actually think it's your enthusiasm, your true reality of what's going on that will make a difference. Because the problem is that when you can make a difference in terms of when you have power and, and money and resources to change things, you're usually my age. And the problem is that I don't think my generation and older people have actually got the sense of how serious it is. And I think it is really serious. Um, so I think you've got to start by recognising there's a problem before you can have that discussion about what you do about it. Okay, Yasmin, I wonder if you agree with um, the mayor there. And um, I would like to know, um, because you have been doing this uh, you know, at a high level and trying to get to the top table of discussions for you know, a good three or four years, have things improved during that time? And are you um, not just listened to, but given a seat at the tables that you need to be at? I think um, like youth activism, as young people, um, we definitely do get in the room with politicians, but it does feel like it's often with the wrong intentions that, um, you know, 
let's get the young people in. It's a good opportunity. We'll get a photo. Um, we'll listen to what they have to say. Tell them it sounds great. And then move on and nothing happens. So uh, for myself, I've had quite a few meetings with um, senior politicians in Welsh government, but um, little action has been taken after that. And it might be a bit cynical, but it does feel like it is more of a media opportunity than an actual willingness to take action. So we had someone um, who was here earlier, I don't know if the gentleman's come back, but he mentioned the Future Generations Commission that Wales is unique in having in having that and a, a future generations commissioner who's tasked with thinking for well for for people who haven't been born yet and you know talk about strategic about making you know policy or trying to push policy in in that direction how do you feel about that role oh it's interesting because um the welsh government like to um show off the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act as this groundbreaking piece of legislation. Um, but in actual fact, um, the commission can only really make recommendations for how public bodies should um, improve. So there's nothing actually enforcing public bodies to actually take action and make change. So fundamentally, while like the legislation sounds great, you know, it it doesn't actually achieve anything. It doesn't push for change. So something definitely needs, it's a good start, but something definitely needs to be done to amend it and make public bodies accountable to consider the well-being of future generations. I said to him that I didn't think you were a fan. I don't, I don't know who's come back. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> okay, thank you for that. Um, Nicola, what, what are you doing to empower youth action in your role? And what can you do? Uh, there's absolutely loads that we can do. And I think that's, um, just sitting here today, just listening to you speak, I mean, we just sort of chatted at the beginning, really, about the fact that we since taking this brief and I've been doing quite a lot of work to try and understand how climate shows up in the curriculum it is different in England than Wales for actually as scathing as you just were then about the legislation that exists in Wales it's a lot worse in England and so it's um there's a long road to go in terms of when you get into the national systems like the education system you're always mindful or you're bridging from shaping a curriculum and actually giving the kids of today the skills that they need versus tokenistic efforts does that make sense like me popping up at a school assembly to talk about recycling would be a good example of a tokenistic effort is it the right thing to do yes will it will it trigger thoughts in those kids minds I'm sure it will briefly will it change a system it's unlikely and so in Bristol we um I've done a lot of work in the children's commission but at at a local city level so I'm mindful that we're you know we need to be describing national change and national Um, infrastructure I guess is what I'd call it around how you get youth voices into these debates I can't comment on how that happens nationally because I don't think it does Um, in Bristol we have a youth council which are very very active they're going through their elections at the moment Um, when we took office in 2016 and this is in no way um, a slight on the previous youth councillors that predated 2016 who are probably now in their 20s but there was definite parts of the city that were represented 
Yeah. And there was definite parts of the city that were not represented. Mm. And so we made it our kind of aim. And Helen Godwin, who was one of my fellow cabinet members for women and children and families for a long time, really set to making sure that we had youth representation from all over the city that was regularly coming to the chamber and well, holding their own policy forums and shaping the policy. I did previously hold the brief around the local plan, which is a planning tool, which is nationally um, national guidance. And actually, meeting the Youth Council on that local plan shapes the way we developed our policy around our zero-carbon policies. And so we have evidence of how young people are influencing the way we work. In what way? Made it stronger? or Yeah, they made it stronger. And because it's the difference between it being guidance and it actually being policy. And so originally the intention was it was going to form a planning document. It was really boring, so I'll try and keep it brief. But actually, through that, through that working group, and by working with young people, they were like, well, they're just not going to do it. And young people have the amazing ability to just cut through in that way because they just see it from what they see on the street, right? They don't have... I mean, I don't really have decades of institutional kind of wear down, but, you know, I've got a a decade and a half. (laughs) Some. But, you know, I've got some. Um, But young people just don't have any of it. They just say what they see. I mean, like, look, what's out on the street? Like, do you see people building zero carbon buildings routinely in our city? No. Do we need to do more of that? Yes. Well, then we need to make it a policy. And it was just totally enlightening. But Mm. having said that... It, there is way more to be done. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, just quickly, I think that, yes, of course, there are these big strategic discussions, but when you see what affects change on the ground, you also need young people ac- across all of the things that we do. And so it does come down to kind of practical stuff as well as big policy decisions. Okay, thank you very much for that. Um, Gabe, what do you think that Patagonia can do to um, amplify even more these youth leaders um, especially coming up to COP26 when, um, uh, you know, I know that there's still a struggle for allocation. Um, You know, they're last in the queue to be given allocation um, to, you know, the rooms that matter. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think Patagonia and COP26, we're, as a company, we're not really, we haven't got plans to be there to, like, change the business, like, you know, support business change. We're not going there as a business. We're we're using our 1% for the planet um fund um which is one percent of our turnover goes out to ngos around the world and the, we're sort of helping the ngos that we support go to represent with regards to the youth activists i don't know exactly if we've got connections in that world with cop 26 mm. but we are trying to reach out you know a lot of diverse communities we're trying to step i feel like you know the patagonia and a lot of the, lot of the brands you might have had here today they're sort of within our world, the surf world, that we're then a bit of an echo chamber. I think we're all probably aware that we do have to step out of our own world. Mm. The surfers will know who we are, the climbers will know who we are, but that's not really going to make the change we need. We need to get more diverse, we need to talk to more audiences, we need to step out of our comfort zone a little bit. Um, so, yeah, we're sort of embracing that, really. How long have you been um, uh, with Patagonia for doing what you do? About eight years now. Yeah, and during that time, I'm interested, is it the more that you do, the more challenging it is to find different avenues? Do you know what I mean? So I'm just wondering how, like, is it getting easier for you to um, speak truth to power or have you ever want to phrase it? Or is it more difficult because... Um, I think as a, as a brand, Patagonia has a lot of different angles going on all of the time. So I'd say it's got more complicated. There's almost more layers to the cake. It's not like the cake, anything gets taken away. So more gets added to the top. Yeah. Um, 
on a personal level, I feel like I probably have got a bit more power with regards to the surf industry because I'm getting probably influenced by my sort of crew to get a bit more impatient with them. And it's like, we, because we do have the answers. And if the brands and the products and the surf industry at large doesn't accept those, then they are part of the problem. They're not part of the solution. And we want to see people take positive action. So, yeah, I am at the sort of brink of calling out when I see it that there's problems. And obviously we want to support the positive steps we're taking, but I'll happily now call out people when you know there's a bit of greenwashing going on and they're clouding the water because they're basically getting in the way. Like We do have an ecological problem, a climate problem, and I'm thinking of, of yeah. I've got a little boy. Yeah. We, we are thinking long term and you know I do think the, the young people I'm thinking we, we haven't got time to waste it sounds like it sounds to me and I'm saying this because I recognise it have, do you feel like you become more courageous pretty much it's yeah. almost like you're almost in a position where you've got nothing to lose at this point in time yeah. because you try to bring people along with you on the journey yeah. they're not coming so we'll, we'll start like yeah. flagging it up yeah. flagging it up when we see it and maybe not on, on a brand we're not brand bashing on this and that but personally yeah. I'm getting a little bit more edgy yeah. and a bit more impatient about it because yeah. I think back to when I was a, a teen young teen and one of the one of the key moments I was a young surfer in the northeast passionate about surfing and at the time Surfs Against Sewage who did the keynote speak this morning uh, with Hugo it was just before Hugo's time they came up to a beach called Hartlepool has anyone ever been to Hartlepool? yes I wouldn't say it's on the tropical list of beaches to go to, as a surfer or anybody else. And I lived a bit up the road from Hartlepool, and at the time, around uh, the Tees River there, you had British Steel, you had ICI, a nuclear reprocessing plant. Um, The water quality was about 10,000 times over the EU limit. It was, like, pretty dangerous to go in the sea there. There's horrific viruses. And surfing and sewage came up to the beach, and I was the young, like, surfer, and we were there for a photo op, and they came up in the gas masks, and they did this incredible photo operation um, for the press, and they had, the, at the time, the big inflatable turd, so this huge, like, 15-foot-long yeah. inflatable brown turd. They still turd. have that in their garage. They sort of bring it out for special occasions. Yeah. It's a bit sort of raw compared to what the campaigns are now a bit more, like, targeted at Parliament um, or group um you know they were in the house of parliament changing policy but at the time when i was a young teen i was like these guys are my heroes like i was happily surfing but these guys were fighting for my beach they'd come from cornwall to fight for my beaches for my water quality with that and to me that was like a game-changing moment so i can see the youth activists like that those few years there are the key years to like when you can inspire a generation yeah, you described that so well. I'm like, oh, God, I can imagine that. Um, back to the youth activism, actually, and the youth leaders. Could you do more to support and amplify them? And um, because, you know, I think we sort of all acknowledge that they are, you know, you acknowledge that they're leading. They're leading this, they're leading the change. And they have very, very clear focus and messaging. Well, absolutely, because I think there's always more you can do, frankly. Uh, and uh, I suppose I'm... Uh, slightly biased in that I spent my early career working in child protection and working with young people, so I kind of get them and, and think they're very important anyway. That's what my previous career was. Uh, but there's certainly more we can do, and that's something that I want the combined authority that I lead to think more about, about how they can do that. What I'd ideally like to see is sums of money being given to young people or groups of young mm-hmm. people. But obviously the problem you've got is you're going to make sure that's used very wisely so that the headline is about important work rather than did they use the money badly so we've got to work out how we do that because that's you'd use the money well wouldn't you 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you, everyone says they would. <laughs> um, but I think that could be a really good way of doing it because I think if, if people had clear responsibilities uh, and clear um, sort of a ge- agenda uh, in which they had to operate in and then they achieved something that was meaningful and important with that resource, uh, that would allow more to happen in that way. And then it would cascade and get bigger and, and I think that's a really good way of doing it. And um, as I looked out in the audience, I could see someone who, who took me along the River Chu. Um, not so long ago uh, with my dog Angel and we walked along the river and we're seeing some amazing things that were happening uh, on the river there to um, plant biodiversity, make sure that, you know, excessive rainfall is gradually put back into the system rather than causing flooding and things like that. And if young people had more say over projects like that and uh, could bring their expertise and knowledge into that and their enthusiasm, because actually that's what you really want. Um, as you get older, you get more staid. You, you do care about things, but it's not the same energetic, buzzy, kind of get it done, need it done yesterday kind of energy, which is what we actually require because it's such an emergency. We've got to get on with it, basically. So we have to have all our citizens involved in as full a way as possible. I mean, one of the things that... Uh, Nicola referred to education. I mean, one of the things that sort of struck me, because I was an environment minister uh, 11 years ago, actually, in the last Labour government, and, and when I first was a minister, all these civil servants come up and they pile all this paper on your desk they want you to read. And most of it, of course, is not terribly helpful, but some of it is absolute gold dust. And one of the things that I remember they told me was that in the history of the world, um, the United Kingdom... Uh, these small islands had contributed the second most CO2 to the world, only after the United States. Now, those are the sort of facts that young people and, and others need to know about because it gives you a sense of responsibility. If you're British... They do know. Well, they, they do. tell us. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> but is that statistic is kind of quite shocking because you think, well, of course, it's because we had the Industrial Revolution first. But what we've got to have is an ambition that comes from that history that takes acknowledges that responsibility because I think we, it gives us a responsibility to lead because actually if we've been there, been responsible, then I think it, we have a... If we get our house in order, we have a moral voice then to say to other countries that are now having their industrial revolution, well, look, we didn't know about CO2 when we had ours, but we do now, and we've got our house in order. We're now net zero, because that's my ambition, actually. Uh, maybe I need to be prime minister to fulfill this, but I want to see the first industrialized country in the whole world become the first net zero industrialized, industrialized country in the whole world. I think that would be a good circle. And then it would allow us, with all our clever people, particularly in our region, who've got great technological and, and inventive skills and all the rest of it, to make a huge difference, um, not just to our country, but the whole planet. Because we could sell and be prosperous as well. It's not just about the environment. We could actually do well out of it, because I think there's a lot of green jobs actually to be had. Okay, thank you. On that note, we have to leave it, I'm afraid, um, because we are out of time. <laughs> but I want to say a huge thank you to um, the panel, to Yasmin, to Nicola, to Gabe, and to the mayor. Thank you. No, I mean, and it's an honour. Um, and thank you to all of you as well. It's our last panel here today. So thank you um, so much for all your support. That was the final run of episodes in this series. We hope that you've been inspired by the talks and conversations we brought you from the first Blue Earth Summit. We'll be back soon with more episodes. And in the meantime, if you haven't signed up for the film's versions, please visit the Blue Earth website at blueearthsummit.com. Blue Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.